All right, well, good morning. So good to see you this morning. Thank you, worship team, for those beautiful songs that prepared our hearts. I'd like to ask you to uh, bow with me as we ask the Lord to be with us, to open our hearts, to speak into our hearts today. Father, in this time, we have set aside our time, our attention to come together with your people in this place to hear from your word. And so as we open your word, Lord, by your spirit, we would pray that you would capture our attention, speak to our hearts and minds, show us the glory of Christ, show us the reality of this world, of the depths of our own hearts, of the brokenness that is all around us, Lord, speak into those things with your gospel, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 14 is where we're at this morning, and we won't uh, do anything so bold as last week, try to cover a whole chapter, but we will make some pretty big swaths in Mark 14. In our final leg of our journey with Jesus in the gospel of Mark, and we move in today to what is called the Passion narrative, the passion narrative, the passion of Jesus. When you hear the word passion, probably you think of, uh, you know, I don't know, romance and Hallmark movies and those kinds of things. But when we speak about the passion of Jesus, we're referring to his suffering. And most specifically to the final week of his life, the suffering that leads um, or comes out of the betrayals and his trial and ultimately his execution on a cross. And uh, I will say to you, this is not meaningless, accidental suffering that we see in the passion of Jesus, but rather divinely ordained, eternally decreed, redemptive, saving suffering in the life of Jesus. You know, when we speak about passion, we would think about with Jesus, it's speaking of his suffering, but it does speak of something that he is doing out of the depths of his own heart for those he loves. So this suffering is because of love. You know, several years ago, my, gosh, maybe several decades ago, uh, Mel Gibson uh, directed a movie called The Passion of the Christ. How many of y'all went to see that? Or maybe you've seen it since. And, and really, man, it really... Um, created quite a stir in the culture and in the churches. And I remember we took a, a big group uh, or went with a big group to see that. And, uh, you know, I'm sure I don't think there was a dry eye in the place. A few years later, our church, uh, in, at around Easter time, we hosted a, um, a movie night. Uh, instead of a Sunday night sermon, we did a, a movie night and showed the Passion of the Christ. And I'll tell you, it was one of the most poorly attended things that I... I had ever scheduled, and I just I kind of asked the question, where was everybody? And I remember people answering back and saying, that is so graphic and so emotional, and it's just, it's hard to be around people. You don't want to cry right there in front of people at church. And I think it, that answer, uh, you know, just makes me think about what we're going to be looking at today and how we naturally recoil from suffering from terrible things. But I will say to you, it's critical that we grapple with this because this is right at the heart of the ministry of Jesus. So we're going to walk through some passages in Mark chapter 14 
And we'll just think through maybe three things, three big headings or sections in this passage as we think about the passion of Jesus. And the first thing is found in verses 1 through 11. And that is the suffering of Jesus through the despisal and rejection that he received. The suffering of Jesus through the despisal and rejection of men. All right, so let's begin. Mark 14, verses 1 through 11. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed for me. For you will always have the poor with you and wherever, um, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She anointed my body beforehand for the burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And they were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. The suffering of Jesus through despisal and rejection. Isaiah 53, the Old Testament prophecy of the coming, coming Messiah, in verse 3 says this, it forecasts that when the Messiah comes, something's going to happen. Isaiah 53, I would encourage you to, to, to read that. Meditate on that passage. Maybe some this week as it foreshadows Jesus and his coming. But listen to what verse 3 says. He, that's the Messiah, was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Here in our story, we see the scribes and the chief priests set out to kill Jesus. But not during the Passover. It's the greatest Jewish holiday, Passover, and the week-long festival of unleavened bread. And in their hearts, they're seeking to kill him. Hey, you know, we live in a broken world. That, that song, Is He Worthy? It begins about the brokenness of our world, a fractured world. We don't want to face that. But it's the reality. And we find all kinds of diversions and ways to avoid looking in the mirror of humanity and seeing the deep fractures and brokenness. We hide our face from that. We look away, just like the people that did not want to look at the suffering Christ in that movie. We look away, naturally, from those kinds of things. But we have to face that. You know, one of the interesting, fascinating things in our day is uh, virtual reality. These worlds, you know, people can put on goggles and there's all kinds of suits and sensors and things that they're making technologically uh, to enter into alternative worlds. I think one of the reasons we do that is because there is so much brokenness and bad things around us. We look for an escape because we don't want to face it. I was listening to a radio program about virtual reality 
And it was interviewing some women who said that they entered into the virtual world and it only took a few minutes before they were violently, sexually accosted by men in virtual reality. Now, my mind's swimming with like, how does that happen? But the fact is, even in these virtual realities that we make, we find that we cannot hide from human sin and evil and brokenness. Jesus came into a world to save sinners. He came to his own people and his own people received him not. In fact, they want to get rid of him to the point they want to kill him. You know, it's one thing to have people not like you. It's another thing to have people not like you and mock you and do all kinds of things to you. Can you imagine, I want you to think for just a moment, what it would be like to walk among people day by day the people that are supposed to be your leaders and the people that are supposed to love you, the people that you love, that you came to help, and they want to kill you. You know, I've been in my share of friction and, and problems and things with folks, and it's so uncomfortable. I've had to face some really hard things with um, some family and things like that, and, and it's just... You, you, almost, you just don't want to look at them. You know they're mad at you. They're, they're, they're against you. And, and it, we just push away. I cannot imagine what it would be like to walk around day by day knowing that the people that you brush up against in the hall or on the streets are actually planning your murder. And here's Jesus. And they're out literally to kill him. But they say, you know, it's festival time, so let's wait until the festival's over, and then we'll deal with this man. These Jewish power brokers are going to wait until Passover is over, this greatest religious holiday when they're supposedly worshiping God, and yet they are set and hell-bent on murdering his son. But Jesus was not despised by everyone. There's something beautiful in this passage when he's in Bethany in his last week, and here is this woman who takes probably her most valuable possession, her most valued treasure, this pure nard perfume that was worth a, about a year's wage. And she takes it because she loves Jesus, because he has changed her life. And out of that love, she comes and she breaks it, and she pours it on him, pours out, this symbol of her life, her most valuable possession other than her life. And she pours it upon him. And they look and say, what a waste. And Jesus corrects them, it's not a waste. In fact, this will be integral to the telling of the gospel from here on out. He says, he says what this woman has done, she has prepared my body for burial. She has anointed him for the things to come. And so you've got the scribes and the chief priests want to kill Jesus. They're going to do it after the Passover. But you've got this woman does this wonderful act of worship and love. And, and there's such a contrast here. And then we come down off of that and we see Judas, one of Jesus' 12 closest associates and friends, one of his disciples, who now has premeditated to set about to do him in. This is no accident. He plans to betray Jesus and he goes to these people that he knows want to silence Jesus. He's thought this all through and he's going to betray Jesus. 
here is this sandwiching that Mark does quite often in his gospel of hatred, beauty, and hatred again. Man, a divided, broken world where people hate one another, hurt one another, even those who love us and that we say we love, we set about to hurt them out of selfishness. And we see that here. We see that here. I think today, as we begin, before we get very deep into Jesus' passion, there's something we have to see and face head on. It is the ugliness, the brokenness of the human heart. We have to see that. That is the world that Jesus came into to save. Not an idealistic world, a broken, fractured world where people are at war, people despise and reject and hate one another and the God who created them. Mm. The next thing we need to see in this gospel is the suffering of Jesus and how it aligns with God's sovereign plan and the sinfulness of treacherous men. Let's read verses 16 through 21 as we're continuing to think about the passion, the suffering of Jesus. Where is God? Whose fault is it? Who's to blame for this thing that happens to Jesus? This passage begins to speak into that. Verse 16, the disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be grieved and, not, and to say to him one by one, surely not I. And he said to them, it is the one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. So Jesus has told his disciples, hey, I want you to go into the city. Now, the, the Jerusalem is probably bustling with, they say, somewhere between one and two million people. Now, it wasn't that many people who lived there, but this was a pilgrimage holiday. It was the only place that the Passover and unleavened bread was to be celebrated. Up to two million people, and it's crowded, and, and they're trying to find a room to celebrate. Jesus says, I want you to go into town. You're going to see a man carrying some water jugs or jars. Follow him. Prepare the Passover in the room that he shows you. And so this has taken place. And so they're celebrating Passover, which is the deliverance of the people of God from slavery from Egypt. They're celebrating how God miraculously did that. And they're having this Passover meal. And in the middle of it, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. He says, take and eat this bread, which is my body broken for you. My blood, which was shed for you. Drink this. Take it in. Assimilate it into your very lives. And so he infuses the Passover with a new celebration as he has come to fulfill the salvation that God has promised. And so the cross and the grave are looming, and there he is with his closest friends celebrating this holiday. And you would think it would be all cheer and happiness. And he says, one of you will betray me. One of you is going to betray me. You know, Jesus knew the cross was coming. 
He knew his death was at hand. He knew his death was central to the very reason that he had come into the world. Jesus came to save sinners, to die on the cross. He knew that. It had been prophesied. It was his very purpose. But we see the confluence of God's sovereignty and his divine plan, which is set about before the foundation of the world, and man's responsibility. And this is important. This is a place where Christians today and throughout history have been struggling and battling and fighting about the friction between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And I would just say to you, right here at the most pivotal point in Jesus' life and ministry, we see those two things come together. God's sovereign plan and man's responsibility for sin. He says, the Son of Man will go as it is written. For he was the Lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world. This is God's divine plan. But he says, but woe to the man. Woe to that one who is the betrayer. It's interesting that the scribes and the chief priests were actually going to wait until after the holiday to kill Jesus. But Judas goes and betrays Jesus and says, you know, I have a plan. And so they go ahead and decide to speed the process up. And so Jesus will actually die right here as the sacrificial lamb at Passover and fulfill it. But Jesus speaks a woe to that man. Woe to the betrayer. Jesus says something here that is pretty tough to listen to. I want you to think about what he says. He said, the one who betrays me, it would be better if he had never been born. More accursed will be his existence in eternity than if he had never existed at all. You know, we hear people say stuff like that. I, I wish I'd never been born. It's a wonderful life, right? Most epic holiday movie. We, we, we watch that. And here's Jimmy Stewart. And he's saying, you know... The world would be better without me. And so it sets about to show all the good that he has done in the world. We hear someone say something like, I wish I'd never been born. Now here now. No one should say that. But hear from the lips of Jesus. Saying of the accursed condition of the betrayer. He would be better had he never been born. That's a pretty clear evidence. That Judas, the betrayer is indeed going to be held eternally responsible for his actions. He is responsible for the sin that he commits against Jesus. Judas is responsible, even though the things that he will do fit exactly and dovetail into God's foreordained sovereign plan. He is responsible. And I wonder if there's not a universal application there. To think about the fact that we are responsible for what we do about Jesus. Do we reject him and say, you know, I'd rather have some temporal comforts. I'd rather not go through some hard things by being a follower of Jesus. I'd rather have silver and gold. Judas wanted temporal comforts. He wanted to avoid the hardship that was coming in the days ahead. He was greedy and self-serving. And Jesus says, woe to that man. 
And I think we can hear woe to those who reject Jesus for their temporal ease and comfort. Woe to those who do not understand the depths of the sinfulness in our heart and our need for salvation and who reject the Savior that God has sent. Woe to that person. I think there is a universal application. And I would say to you today, what have you done with Jesus? Have you accepted and received his forgiveness and salvation? Or have you rejected him? Eternity depends on how you answer that question. Judas will not be able to stand before the Lord and say, but Lord, the things that I did actually brought about the fulfillment of your plan. There will be no excuse. Judas will give an answer for his life and his treachery and his rejection of Jesus and for his sin because he rejected the salvation that Christ offered to him. And so we see God's sovereign plan, man's responsibility in the suffering of Jesus. Let's move into the last section, the suffering of Jesus as he suffers alone and forsaken. Verses 27 through 37. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. Because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all were saying the same thing also. They came to a place named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, that the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Jesus, in this deepest suffering, in the pinnacle of his ministry, I will say to you that he suffered, and he suffered alone, virtually forsaken by all. So he has announced that Judas, one, there's going to be one who dips his hand in the bowl with me that's going to betray me, but, and they're all, is it, is it me? Is it I? Surely not I. I would never do that. And finally, Jesus there at the supper says, all of you will fall away. Every last one. For it is written, the shepherd is stricken or strike and the sheep will scatter. Every one of you in just a few hours are going to flee from me and abandon my side. And there's Peter, not I. I will go even to the death with you. And Jesus says, no. Before the rooster crows just a couple of times, you will have denied me not once, not twice, three times. Jesus alone and forsaken. Before that happens, though, they leave the upper room. They go to the Mount of Olives and they're singing a hymn. 
after that great supper. And they enter there at the foot of that hill at the, of the Mount of Olives into the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus tells the disciples, he says, y'all sit here. Y'all sit here and pray. Keep watch. And he takes the inner circle, the three, and he says, y'all come a little bit further with me. Pray with me. And he goes to his knees and he begins to pray. And I believe this is a pivotal point in the passion of the Christ where the bitter cup, now they've just had the Passover where the different cups of wine would pass to each one. And now there is a bitter cup with the gall of God's wrath, the nastiness of sin and all that it deserves. And it's coming and it's touching the lips of Jesus in a spiritual way, you understand. And he tells his friends, pray with me that somehow this would pass by. And the cup is placed to his lips. And he's praying. And his disciples, in his darkest hour, his deepest need, they're sleeping. They have already basically forsaken him. They will not stand with him. They're not going to be burdened with what he's burdened with. They go to sleep. Can't even pray with him. And that cup is held before him just like it was in that Passover Seder. He says, Father, if all things are possible for you, let this pass me by, if it's your will. But he knows, and the Father speaks, that it is not his will that it passed by, but that Jesus would drink of that cup to the dregs. You know what the dregs are? To the lees, it's sometimes uh, referred to. It's, it's the little stuff, the remnants in the bottom of the cup, like of wine. He is charged to drink it all, every last bit, down to the dregs. And God begins, this is not an instant, momentary thing. It's not just an hour or two on the cross. Listen to me. This is a long, drawn-out suffering. As God begins to pour out his wrath. And that cup is there before the lips of Jesus. And he knows he must drink it. And the weight of the world's sin and punishment begins to bear down on him in his soul. This is nothing that he deserved, for he was the spotless lamb. This was what we, our sins, deserve. But he's taking it in and taking it on himself, and he's troubled. And where are the disciples? They're laid out. Jesus says, I'm deeply grieved even to the point of death. Do you, feel, do you feel this? Have you ever personally felt so burdened, so weighed down, that you said, I, I, I feel like I'm on the brink of dying? He is right on the precipice of death, spiritual death. That's what he's feeling. And they're snoozing. And he's grieved. And he's not just grieved, folks. He's grieved alone. He's carrying it by himself. The loneliness, 
of being left. The loneliness, no one praying with him. And then the forsakenness. Feels as if he's God forsaken because God's wrath is being poured out on him. And for the next few weeks, we're going to walk this Calvary road. We're going to walk through the passion, the suffering of Jesus and see where it leads. But today, I just want us to feel what Jesus, in some small measure, what Jesus is feeling and understand that that is because of the brokenness and the sin and the wickedness and the evil of this world of the human heart. And as this is happening, I'll tell you, there's just things bubbling up all over. And, and, you know, we're put off from the Bible story just a little bit, not just because of the harshness of it, but, you know, because it just seems like a culture far away and some of the things we don't share. But I'll tell you, the more I read the Gospels, the more I read about the life of Jesus, the more I read about betrayal and human, human wickedness and all of these things, what I realize is nothing has changed. We can create all the virtual realities and augmented worlds we want, but it does nothing to the human heart and sinfulness. The heart is desperately wicked and depraved. Who can know it? Well, Jesus knows it. And all of this is bubbling to the surface. And again, it's just an invitation for us to begin to look in the mirror, humanity's mirror, maybe to look in our own Life. I know this is convicting for me to think about how we betray one another, how we betray one another's confidence, how we speak against other people out of selfishness, how much, honestly, we're like Judas. It's all about me. It's all about my comfort, what I can get, what I want. That is human pride and wickedness, folks. And in the life of Jesus, I think that we would find that all of us have that in us. And Jesus came to do something about it. I want to close with uh, just a couple of maybe points of summary and application. Kind of put a fine point on this thing. A couple of fine points. As we think about the passion and suffering of Jesus. Number one, the passion and suffering of Jesus Christ invites us to squarely face the brokenness and sinfulness and suffering of the world and that we cannot save ourselves. Jesus didn't come to sweep things under the rug. He came to expose the depths of depravity in humanity, but to do something about it. And you know, the gospel will never mean anything to us and it will not change us if we don't face that. We recoil from that We try to hide and find other diversions. But if the gospel would mean anything to us, we have to let the great physician speak about our condition. So this passion invites us to face that. We're broken. We hurt one another. I don't know if any of you have ever killed someone or plotted to kill them. Certainly if you're married, you've threatened to. Or if you have children, right? We know. I mean, there's just, there's all this stuff that comes out of us when we're squeezed and pressured. We know that we have this kind of hatred and pride in our hearts. 
And we need to face that. And we need to be willing to let the Lord surface that. And that's what will happen as we explore the passion of Jesus. I think this is another point, that the suffering of Jesus, and especially this woe that was spoken to Judas, speaks to us about what we face in eternity. You know, the suffering in this life, no matter what it is, I'll tell you what it's a result of. It's a result of God's curse on sin. Now, that's not to say that every sickness or problem that we have is one-to-one, like I did this bad thing and all of a sudden this bad thing happened. But we do have to reckon with the fact that suffering and hardship and bad things are part of the curse that has come because of our sinfulness. We have to reckon with that. And I'll tell you, that pain and suffering that we face, you know what it is? It's God's warning. It's the lights going off, going this waywardness, this path that you're on apart from God only leads to death and eternal destruction. And so it should make us think about when we see all the things around us going wrong, we should think about judgment day. When we stand before the Lord, woe to us if we reject the forgiveness and salvation that comes in Jesus. Here's something that's maybe a little more healing for you today. Because I know that probably every person in this place is suffering or struggling or walking through some sort of hardship, either in your family, your life, your health. Maybe, maybe it's uh, with extended family. Maybe it's at work, whatever it may be. You're facing something very difficult. And I think that this passage and watching Jesus come into the depths of our pain and suffering tells us something. And here it is. You're not alone. God has not forsaken you. If you are trusting in Christ, he has already borne the God-forsakenness. In our darkest hours, in our deepest pain, we say, God, where are you? I tell you, if you're in Jesus, and the story of Jesus tells us that no matter how low we get when we cry out to God, he is with us. He is with us. That's one of the most beautiful things about the gospel. Is that God did not just stand up in heaven and look down and say, man, what a mess. He put on his work clothes. And he came down in the middle of the mess. And he went down to the deepest place to lift us up. And so that as we face our suffering and pain, when we cry out to him, we can know he has not forsaken us. He has not abandoned us without hope. We have a great high priest, Jesus Christ, who has faced every kind of temptation and trial and test that we will face. And we can come to him in our hour of need. And I think here is the last one and maybe the most practical. As Jesus' people who are supposed to model our lives after his life, our way of operating after his way of operating, when we think about Jesus coming alongside down in the middle of our suffering to walk arm in arm with us, to bring us out of it, it should inspire us and instruct us how we are to treat others, and minister to others. And I'm going to tell you, I mean, I'm, I'm convicted about this terribly because 
When I get in the middle of other people's messes, I'm like, that's your problem. And, and sometimes I just want to kind of pull away and alienate myself and go, la, 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 la. Or I'll pray for you. Good luck with that. Isn't that terrible to be a pastor and be that way? It is terrible. And this helps me a little bit to go, you know what? We're all broken sinners. And the way of Jesus is not to hide from people who need healing, but it's to come alongside them and to try to lift people up. Or we can be like a Judas and see how we can profit from it or how we can step on other people when they're down. But the way of Jesus is a way of solidarity, to use a word that's common today, to stand with those who are hurting. And that's what the church is supposed to be. People who minister as the hands and feet of Jesus. I've never heard anyone say, well, to be like Jesus is to come alongside. Come alongside. Build up. Lift up. For Jesus' sake. There's enough people in this world trying to tear us down. Divided, fractured, bickering, fighting. I tell you, one of the most sickening things in the Christian realm today is to read articles that people write and then to go down and look at the stupid comments and the hateful spewing. And we're just constantly tearing one another down. And I tell you, I want to be more like Jesus. I'm no Jesus. One of the things that as I'm reading through this, I go, man... I couldn't save anybody. I couldn't save anybody, but I'm so glad that he came to save us and to show us and empower us in a different way. And I want to be more like Jesus, don't you? To see him on his knees, bearing out his heart, you know, you, and he's needing his friends there, he's invited them in, some of you are probably thinking, man, that's not, very, uh, that's not very manly. That's not very tough. Tough and strong is the person who can come alongside and bear other people up, not tear them down. And he has gone, Jesus has gone to the very bottom, all the way to the bottom to push us up, to lift us up, to give us hope and something different. Would you bow with me today? Today as we begin to wrap this thing up and, and figure out what, what is the response, I would just say, number one, however the Word and the Spirit have spoken to you in your heart, that's how you need to respond. Maybe it's that you've been convicted that you have a family member, a friend, a brother, a sister, someone who is down in the deep, dark depths and you need to come alongside. You need to help. You need to lift them up. You need to tell them about Jesus. Maybe it's needing to repent, to turn, to confess, to make right somewhere that you have hurt others. 
but surely for all of us. It's to make sure that we have not rejected Jesus, but that we've opened wide our hearts like this woman. And out of gratitude for his salvation, we surrender all. We give all. We lay down our lives with him, for him, to him. Father, today, our prayer is that you would move in our hearts, move in our congregation, to move in our community, to move in our country, to bring about healing that comes through Christ and Christ alone, to save sinners, to bring hope, to change us, to transform us more to be like Jesus, less to be like Judas. Lord, if it's necessary today, hit us head on, right between the eyes with our complicity for the brokenness, the wickedness and the suffering, the hurting that goes on around the world. It goes on right here, even in our own homes. Lord, help us. Help us to feel what you feel, to see what you see. Most of all, help us to see Jesus clearly today down on his knees taking that cup of wrath to his lips and drinking it for us so that we might have eternal life. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.